you've got your Bible today, will you turn with me to Luke's Gospel, the very end of chapter 9. I'll begin reading in verse 51, where the text for today is printed there on page 10 in your bulletin. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people didn't receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who has puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it, and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who this Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. This is the word of the Lord. We ask you, O Lord our God, now to move by the Spirit with the Word and drive this text home into our hearts and change us for your glory. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Should we be bothered by this little line? Jesus, the way he talks, this little line in chapter 10, verse 3, where he says, look, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. You know, we just read that. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Thanks so much, Jesus. <laughs> I mean, picture this. You kids, give me, give me some help here. You, you, you young ones, you, you've seen a wolf. 
you ever seen a picture of a real wolf? You know, and they kind of get their snout down like this, right? And the ears come forward, and they get that death stare. And the lip curls, and they snarl, and there's just fangs. Wolves are killers. They're killers. And they're sheep. My sister upstate has sheep. So I walk by these animals all the time when I'm up there. And I mean no offense to my sister's sheep or any other sheep in this world, but I must tell you that compared, say, to wolves or any other animal for that matter, sheep are uniquely unimpressive animals. If you want stubbornness, get a sheep. If you want cunning or any kind of battle readiness, any sort of fighting capacity whatsoever, no sheep. Let alone lambs, you know, little sheep. Yay, lambs in the midst of wolves. What's the outcome going to be, kids? I mean, it's going to be a bloodbath. Unless, and imagine this, unless those lambs, those sheep, they are sent to the wolves. Jesus says, I am sending you. And they're sent to the wolves by a very particular shepherd with a message from that shepherd. And that message is an invitation to these wolves to come enter the shepherd's fold and become his sheep and to follow him. And that message, because it's from this particular shepherd, is so powerful that when wolves hear that the sheep speak that message, sometimes it will instantly turn wolves into sheep by the, just the power of the message. Sometimes the wolves will actually kill the sheep, and then they'll be turned into sheep. Sometimes they will just kill the sheep, and the shepherd will come and destroy those wolves. But however it goes down in any particular instance, it will become clear over time as you watch this play out, the sheep are winning. It may still look like what's going on here is going to be a bloodbath. But this is a crucial reminder that Jesus is giving to us and to his disciples, that if we are going to follow Jesus as he is bringing God's kingdom into all the earth, then we have got to see beyond appearances. We must see beyond appearances. And the disciples really need to hear and be reminded to see beyond appearances because everything they've experienced in this entire gospel so far, and some of it's been pretty intense, it has been mere pregame to this pivotal moment in chapter 9, verse 51, where we're told Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem. That is a crucial turning point physically and in the story. And I want to just take a moment, and I want to notice here a vastly bigger mission that now is opening up in this gospel. A vastly bigger mission, because up until now, Jesus has been ministering. If you get out a Bible map sometime, you'll notice he's been ministering up north near the Sea of Galilee, near where he was raised in Nazareth. And he could, up to this point in the gospel, I mean, he's done some amazing things, but it, it would be possible to look at Jesus up till now in the gospel and see him as kind of a small-time prophet ministering in his hometown region. You know, this kind of thing happened in Israel from time to time. He could be kind of seen as a parochial prophet. And even the mission of his 12, he sent them to the cities near, you know, near the Sea of Galilee. They're kind of ministering still in that same sort of hometown region. You know, a hometown guy, and here's his hometown team. This could all seem fairly parochial. But now, though it's going to take a long time and many miles, Jesus locks his gaze onto the city of Jerusalem. It is also called Zion in the Bible. 
And the significance of that target now, which will occupy us all the way until he arrives in chapter 19, the significance of that target simply cannot be overestimated because you guys know this well, as you read through the Old Testament, historically, Jerusalem was the city of God on earth. God lived there in his glory cloud. He dwelt among his people in this city of the king, not just the king of Israel, the human king, but the king, the high king. It was the hub of God's kingdom activity. You know, everything in the Bible kind of zeroes in over time from kind of looking at the world to looking at the land to looking at this city to looking at the temple in this city. And from the humanity as a whole to Abraham's family down to the line of David and then the city of David. Very important city. The center of God's presence in the world. The center of God's purposes in the world. Very, very significant. But it's troubling now in the gospel because we have discovered that this very city, with all of that history, is now the base of operations for the religious establishment that has been the main opposition to Jesus. Now this is sort of, this is messy, isn't it? That this city of God, that's supposed to be the, a beacon of light to the nations, it's now kind of the main nerve center of the opposition to Jesus. And it's, it's even more than that. It's not just the religious leaders in Jerusalem. We know by now that through the dynasty of King Herod, first Herod the Great, by now in Jesus' time, Herod Antipas, through the dynasty of the Herods, Jerusalem has become allied with the greatest Gentile power in the known world, which is, of course, Imperial Rome at the time. And when you think about Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 2, in which he sees that a little stone is going to come hurtling through the air and it's going to strike the feet of this great image of Gentile world powers, and he's going to strike the, the stone is going to strike the feet of this image where Israelite clay is mingled with Gentile iron. That's where the stone is, of God's kingdom is going to strike this giant image of Gentile powers. If you think about that, then what you realize that this, what's happening here in chapter 9, verse 51, this actually has eschatological significance, by which I simply mean this is, we're now seeing something that belongs to the latter days, those great latter days for which God's people hoped, the time of the arrival of the kingdom. What we're basically seeing here is that little stone, it's incoming. It's about to hit the feet, the iron and the clay. Now, of course, what this looks like is just an unassuming man walking toward a city. That's what it looks like. But in fact, what we're seeing here is the Lord the Lord, like that Lord that the prophets, Isaiah in particular, talked about, the Lord is coming to his city. He is coming to his temple. The Lord is coming to Zion to liberate his people from the hand of their enemies. This is a new exodus. We already know from last chapter, this is a new exodus that's about to happen. Isaiah foretold a new exodus. And so as we look at the 12 here, going before Jesus in verse 52, or in chapter 10, verse 1, as 72 others are sent on ahead of him. This is very important. As the 12 go before the Lord to prepare his way, or the 72 are sent ahead of the Lord, these are, they are practical arrangements, but they're more than practical arrangements. Because what we're seeing here is with the 12 and the 72, these are flashbacks to who was the great prophet who went before the Lord to prepare his way. We've read about him earlier in the gospel. These are flashbacks, quite obviously, to John, who baptized. He, we already know from chapter 7, he was the great Elijah messenger sent to prepare the way of the Lord. And so now, whereas John went before the Lord to prepare his way, the 12 are going before the 72. 
And we'll return in a few moments to the reception that these forerunners of Jesus receive in what they encounter in Samaria there in chapter 9, verse 53. But for now, I actually want to jump ahead to chapter 10, and I want to just notice something else in the mission of these 72. This is really fascinating stuff, because as you look at their mission, so just kind of skip over the Samaria thing for a minute. If you look at these 72 that are sent out in chapter 10, if on one hand, as I've just said, this is a throwback to John, they're going before the Lord to prepare his way, you also, in this unique ministry of the 72, you see a preview of something in the future. Now, here's where you all have to know maybe Luke's work a bit more as a whole. You know, he has these two books, Luke and Acts, and, and you kind of know, you have to know that story a little bit as a whole, because you'll notice immediately, if you know some of the later story, a time is coming in the future. We're not there yet. We'll get there in the book of Acts. But a time is coming when these apostles, these 12 followers of Jesus, who are now with him on his mission, they're not going to be anymore the confused, kind of clueless, often faithless, spiritually wobbly people that they have been so far in the gospel. And they're going to, they're going to be that way from much of Luke's gospel to the very end. They're not going to be spiritually wobbly people like that anymore. There will come a time, not too far off in the distance, when after the day of Pentecost, these apostles are going to grow into a host of people from all the nations sent to all the nations. You'll remember that on the day of Pentecost, there are followers of the way from all nations who suddenly are hearing the gospel in their own distinct languages, and then they're going back to the nations to preach the gospel. And this little thing of 12 is becoming a much bigger thing that involves the nations. And that is previewed here because, do you know what the 72, or why that number is so significant? This is one of those places where you kind of have to know your Bible a bit. Way back in Genesis chapter 10, right before the Tower of Babel, and right before God calls Abraham, the, the three sons of Noah and all of their descendants are, are listed out in some genealogy, and there are 72 nations descended from the sons of Noah. And so the, the number 72, it's not used very often in the Bible, but that number 72 would have immediately triggered for Israelites, oh, we're seeing, seeing something here that has like the nations in view. This is more than just a little thing going on with, around Jesus in this particular place. This is, this is like you know the table of nations. There's a scope to this that we haven't seen before. And to kind of underscore that, you heard Paul mention it in Romans 1 that I just read a moment ago, when Jesus talks about a harvest, a plentiful harvest. Well, in the prophets, the harvest is when God puts in his sickle and reaps the whole earth. So there's just something that feels much bigger here than anything we've seen before. And in that coming time, after the day of Pentecost, the apostles are not going to be faithless, confused, and wobbly. They're going to be filled with what just, it's just indomitable, indomitable spiritual power. I mean, the thing that strikes you after the day of Pentecost is that these kind of cringing, cowardly disciples are just like warrior preachers. And it's interesting to notice as these apostles, come, these 72 come back after they've been out on this mission, they start basically saying, we were just, the authority that you gave us, Jesus, like the demons were just fleeing before us. There was so much spiritual power. And, and they, they, these 72, they look a lot more like the spirit-filled church in Acts than most of what we find among the disciples in the book of Luke. And in that time to come, of course, the gates of hell are going to fall 
as these apostles and those who surround them and grow from their ministry, they are going to seed the gospel among all nations until at the end of Acts, they're all the way into Caesar's household. And we're just getting a little glimpse of that coming massive thing God's going to do. Jesus, at the end of Luke's gospel, tells his disciples, wait for power from on high. You almost get a glimpse of power from on high here. This is awesome. And so, you know, being a pastor, I'm kind of like, well, what's their growth strategy, right? You know, insert LOL. You know, like, what's, well, you know, that's the modern Christian way. What's the growth strategy? Well, notice the growth strategy, if we could call it that. First of all, Jesus says, pray a lot. Pray earnestly. This is a big harvest. I mean, you guys don't even know. Pray earnestly. We need a lot of workers. You'll also notice in their ministry that the urgency of their mission I mean, this is an urgent mission. They're proclaiming God's kingdom is here. Y'all, this is, it is time to turn and listen and receive what God is doing. The urgency of that mission, it just strips away many ordinary comforts from their life, many ordinary provisions. They are traveling light. No extra sandals, no bag, no knapsack. Don't even stop and greet people. Don't even talk. Get on your mission. Get it done. And that does remind us also of what we know will later happen. The early church, the apostles, they are unsettled. They are scattered. There's an urgency in the book of Acts as the church is getting started, and they're dependent often, those preachers in the, in the early church, they're dependent on God's provision. They're dependent on human hospitality. You see the same thing here. A lot of urgency. Although it's interesting as you go on, and Jesus talks about what they're supposed to do when they arrive in these towns. I love the fact that their message is peace. Peace. This isn't like a scary, you know, God's coming in. You know, clouds of wrath. It, it's peace. We're here to proclaim God's peace. God is seeking reconciliation and friendship. And I, I love the fact that Jesus says, eat and drink, like the Son of Man came eating and drinking. It's festive. Enjoy being with these people. You get the sense when he says, eat whatever they set before you. Now, I think these were Israelite towns, but there's a little hint here of something else that will happen much later, which is sometimes these Jewish missionaries are going to have to push, push past some cultural barriers and just eat what's put in front of them and not be too hung up on the, the kosher laws of Moses. And in verse 9, you notice, what are they doing? They're healing the sick, and they're bringing the healing of the kingdom of God. When God comes and rules, things get healed. But I'd like you to notice, their mission is a winnowing mission. You guys know what winnowing is when you crush grain, when it's still in the, in the husk, the chaff falls off, and what's left is the grain. And then you throw the grain in the the chaff up in the air, and the wind drives the chaff away, and the grain remains, and you can then, you know, do your thing with your grain. And that's, this is going to be a winnowing ministry, because again, like the early church, you see here, there is wheat, and there is chaff, and their ministry is separating the two, because Jesus says there's going to be chaff. There are going to be times when you're going to offer God's peace, and it's going to bounce back to you. Verse 6, of a son of peace, a heart person whose heart is responsive to God's peace is in that town, your peace will rest upon him. If not, it'll boomerang, as one commentator puts it, it'll boomerang back to you. You don't want peace, and it comes back to us. God's peace is no longer with you. And Jesus goes on to say, when those towns, if they, when they reject you, they're rejecting me, and the judgment on them will be like the judgment on Sodom. Or as he says, beginning in verse 13, like the judgment that's going to befall those northern towns up in Galilee, like Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, Serious judgment because they re rejected the Lord himself. So all of this in the 72 is foreshadowing something awesome that is going to unfold in the future. And as that preview unfolds, you'll notice there's a very unusually jubilant moment, beginning in verse 17, when they get back at the completion of their mission. 
They've come home now, and I just love, they're so excited. They basically say to Jesus, this just went so well. Like even demonic powers were just obeying us as we spoke your word. And I, and I love the fact that Jesus joins in. He says, you know, I was watching, and I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. I know, the lambs won. <laughs> and in your ministry, my lambs, the ruin of Satan has begun. And he rejoices in the Holy Spirit in verse 21 because he's, he's, the disciples have just grasped, if only briefly, gosh, they're, they're, they're going to go back to being thick, many of them. But they've grasped, if only briefly, what he, the Lord of heaven and earth is doing. Thank you, Father. I bless you that you, the Lord of heaven and earth, the cosmic king, you've revealed to these little babes what you've hidden from everyone else, what you are doing in this world. And they also have seen who the Son is. The Father has revealed to them the Son. Jesus is the Son. He's the Son from the Father, and he's the one who's here to be the King and to subdue all things to God's good healing will. And Jesus says to them in verse 23, he says, I just want you guys to know how blessed you are, because God didn't have to reveal this to you, but you have seen things that so many prophets and kings longed to see in some major dark times in Israel's history. They longed for this kingdom to come, and you have seen it, and God has shown it to you, and it's awesome. And yet, even amid the jubilance, you'll notice in verse 20, there's a gentle caution, that as this great thaw begins, and the latter-day blessings that God has promised are beginning to flow mightily now, these disciples and we do need a reminder, Jesus says, not to focus too much on immediate visible results. Don't make it your big thing the spirits are subject to you because they need to keep firmly in view the terms of participation in this mission. The terms of participation. So I want to move now from this vastly bigger mission that unfolds, and I want you to notice also in our text the beating heart of missionary life. And it's not, Jesus says, that the demons are running in front of you. The beating heart of missionary life. Very powerful in this text. There's an Australian pastor named Mark Sayers whose work I follow a little, and he talks, he has studied for many years life cycles in organizations and movements. Every organization has life cycle. And movements have life cycles. And he applies some of these insights to Christian churches and Christian movements. And I think today on our 11th anniversary, this is a good moment to just notice what Jesus does here. As he talks about the beating heart of missionary life. Because, you know, when, when, when Jesus is working by the Holy Spirit in the world, many of you guys, I mean, Trinity is not your first gig. You guys have been, a, and it's not your only gig even now. You guys have a lot of things you've been involved with over the years where you can tell Jesus is doing something. God is doing something here. The Holy Spirit is moving. And in those early days of a movement that, where Jesus is doing things, there's this pioneering phase where people are really excited about Jesus. Like, they're really into him. And they're excited about living for Jesus. Like, obeying Jesus is not a heavy yoke. I want to do what he wants me to do. And they're eager to serve him together. They're not just over here like, you know, me and Jesus. No, I'm part of this that Jesus is doing with these people. And they're excited about it. And they're like, yeah, let's get together and... And, and, and do what God wants us to do because they want other people to come to know Jesus. There's this very kind of big-heartedness about these pioneering times when we just want people to know the Lord. 
and it's exciting. There's a lot of energy. There's a lot of commitment. There's a lot of cohesiveness. And human hearts, being what they are, there's always a subsequent phase. There are often phases in which, very often, there is a certain amount of stagnation that starts to set in. And it's not at all unusual for there to be corruption over time of what Mark Sayers calls the robust norms that mobilize the pioneers. Pioneers have these robust, lively norms, like this is the stuff that matters, that God is doing. And that begins, those robust norms begin to get a little bit stagnant, and sometimes they just end up being outright corrupted. Things tend, in Christian movements as well as in other movements, in Christian organizations, things tend over time to begin to flatten out and even deteriorate. These robust norms need a lot of renewal. And I want you to notice that Jesus identifies in our text two robust norms of his mission in these early days. Not only norms, robust norms in his immediate context and also in the early church, but for all disciples in all times. So we'll just notice them quickly together. I want you to notice, first of all, one of the robust norms of Jesus' mission is grace. Look at chapter 9, verse 53, grace. This does slip from our view. Because they get to Samaria, and of course they're rejected because these people don't like Jesus because they don't like Jews, and he's going to Jerusalem. Now the king's aim, dear saints, God's goal on his mission, Jesus' goal on his mission, is that sinners, now when we talk about sinners, we mean people that oppose God. They do not want God to rule them. They resist the whole idea of God ruling them. But God's aim, the king's aim, is that these sinners be persuaded, be reconciled, be restored. That's the heart of the king. And the king gives us weapons of warfare in this kingdom that reflect that goal. What are the weapons of the warfare of Jesus' kingdom? Well, you know, weapons of mass destruction, right? Big guns and spears and swords. No, the weapons of our warfare are speaking truth and serving and blessing and showing hospitality and lots and lots of patience. Patience is a weapon of the kingdom. Because you know what? In Acts chapter 8, we're going to find out Jesus sends some missionaries in the early church back to the land of Samaria, and the whole region has a salvation experience. It takes time. And patience is a weapon of the kingdom. You know, we all love talking about God's love, don't we? Until we're opposed, until we're rejected, until we're marginalized as Jesus' people. Now love, you know, I don't know. And there's a perennial temptation in the Jesus movement to use force to crush God's enemies, right? We're going to put these people in their place. We're going to visit God's judgment on them. You know, for James and John, it's miracle power. Jesus has given them miracle force, and they could call down fire from heaven and blast these Samaritans into the ground. And so that's what they want to do. They're very tempted by, you know, let's, let's show these people who's boss. And it, through the ages, of course, the church has often been tempted by political force. I, I've been persuaded by Nicholas Perrin's reading of this encounter where someone says to Jesus, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, foxes have holds. Birds of the air have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And people always read this like, well, what Jesus is saying is, you know what, I don't have somewhere to sleep at night, so it's going to be a little bit tough. That's not what he's saying, I don't think. Because in Luke chapter 13, we'll get there in a little bit, Jesus calls King Herod a fox. 
And in that same chapter, he quotes from Daniel about the kingdom of God being this little mustard seed that grows into a big tree and all the birds of the air nest in its branches. And that in Daniel, it, me, it refers to the kings and nations of the earth coming to, to rest uh, under a particular structure of authority. And so when Jesus says, you know, the fox, he's got a lair, and the birds of the air have got their nests, it sounds very likely what he's saying to this zealous person who says, I'll go with you wherever you go. I'll follow you to the end of your mission. Jesus says, you know, I just want to be very clear. There are no plans in this mission to go seize Herod's lair or storm Caesar. We're not going after Herod's lair. We're not going to storm Caesar's nest. This is not a revolutionary movement. You just need to know that. You know, in all your zeal to follow me to the end of the road, you know, bring the sword. This is not a revolutionary movement. Jesus rebukes James and John. We are, he says, man, we are offering peace. Our message is the grace of God, the grace of the high king. And where there is a lust for coercive power or violent overthrow, that is contrary to the spirit of this mission, we are going to pull down the gates of hell by very different measures. Things like a cross. That's the grace of the mission. Because the, the fires of judgment are going to come. God will bring them. Our work is to pro proclaim God's peace, the kindness of God's heart, the fullness of his saving work through Jesus' death and resurrection, the goodness of God's ways. That's the mission. And in being gracious to God's enemies, it's helpful to remember that our friendship with him is by grace alone. I mean, Jesus says in verse 21, Father, you've revealed these things to babes. So you didn't have to do that. And that helps us keep gracious toward those who oppose Jesus and his kingdom. That is a robust norm that needs constant renewal. There's another robust norm here that Jesus identifies. And I know it's warm in here, and I know sometimes it can be tough to keep listening at this point in the sermon, but I really want you guys to hear this. The other robust norm that Jesus identifies here is sacrifice. Sacrifice. Because if you look at verse 59, chapter 9, verse 59, there are two other men who approach Jesus or whom he approaches. In the pioneering phase of a movement or an organization, when Jesus is doing things, pioneers say, they say no to a lot of things so they can say yes to what God is doing. That's one thing you notice about pioneer times. People are saying no to a lot of stuff because they want to say yes to what Jesus is doing. But as a movement grows, as it is here in chapter 9 and chapter 10, as a movement grows, the need for sacrifice can often become less obvious. And people can start to think, well, I can follow Jesus and still keep everything that I call mine. Follow me. Well, my father. I'll follow you, Lord, my, but my, my home. And there are people that are coming to Jesus, and they think they can have the whole Jesus thing. They can be on this movement, on this mission, and still have everything they call mine just pretty much undisturbed. Now, what's interesting, of course, is that it's not that these things that these two men are looking at are bad. Nothing wrong with family. Nothing wrong with having a home and all that comes with keeping a home and, you know, all that surrounds your life. What is, what is, the problem here is not that these are bad things. The problem is that these things are competing with Jesus. Notice the language. Jesus says this one man, you follow me. And he says, first, my father. Another man says, I'll follow you, Lord, but, but first, my home. That's competition with Jesus. 
And every disciple of Jesus and every Christian movement faces this question, and I will ask it to you. Are things competing in your life with the worship of God's kingdom, the fellowship of God's kingdom people, service to the king, witness for the king? Do we need less? Is Jesus calling us to have less in our lives so we can do more with our Lord? Sacrifice is a robust norm of the kingdom. You must say no to some things if you are to say yes to Jesus. So how do we renew this robust norm? Say at Trinity, 11 years on. I think about this a lot as a pastor, and it, it's, it's difficult because, you know, like, like you, uh, I've been a part of Christian movements. Uh, some of you have been a part of them too. There are Christian movements that demand a ton of sacrifices. They just say, you've got to say no to that and that and that and that and that because you're going to go over here and you're going to do this for Jesus. And they will even go so far as to tell you that you are disobeying God if you do not make those sacrifices that they demand of you. And of course, this can very quickly lead to a very, very legalistic culture in the movement. You can end up with authoritarian leaders that are just kind of running people's personal lives, and I think we would all agree that is not healthy. It is not what Jesus wants. I think way, 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 way more Christian movements in our day leave the whole business of sacrifice to just everybody's individual personal choice. And what ends up happening in these movements is, oftentimes, you end up needing to try to market Christian sacrifice to Christians in a way that appeals to their self-interest. You know, come serve here. Come sacrifice here, because it'll be way more fun than all that stuff you planned for Saturday night. Here's the hard reality about sacrifice in the kingdom. There are not a lot of specific rules for how you must sacrifice for Jesus and his kingdom. But we are commanded to sacrifice because we love Jesus, because we love Jesus' people, because we love a world of lost sinners who need to know the Lord because they are going to spend eternity under absolute ruin if they do not know him. And our heart loves this king, and we love the kingdom people, and we love the mission to see these people come to know the king savingly, and we are commanded to say no to things to be on that mission. To be in and devoted and committed and laying down our lives for it. That's the language Jesus uses. You and I must lay down our entire life at the feet of the king because he owns it all. He bought all of it with his blood. My time, my energy, my relationships, my plans, my future, my education, my money. Lay it down at his feet. Because what Jesus is saying to these people is not you shouldn't have a father or you shouldn't have a home. You don't have any allegiance higher than me. I call the shots in your life from now on. If I say follow me, you have to leave your father. That's how it is. If you say you're going to follow me and you have your home competing in the back of your mind, you cannot be my disciple. You must say no to things to say yes to me. That is the sacrifice of the kingdom. And we need to seriously ask ourselves whether we are truly using everything in our life to serve this king. And obedience to this command, it cannot remain nebulous. It's like when I talk to people about tithing. It's one of my least favorite conversations as a pastor. Pastor, do I have to give? Does the Bible really say I have to give 
And I sigh inside. And I just tell people, my, my brother, my sister, this is not a tax. I'm not going to send, you know, the Trinity IRS to check up on your 10%. What are we talking about here? This is not a tax. But if I tell you there's no law that says thou shalt 10%, I want to check it down to the penny. If it's not a tax, at the other, on the other hand, it's not, well, you know, someday if you've got a little bit of extra discretionary income and you kind of feel, you know, generous that day, you know, maybe you could give a little bit to Jesus. Paul leans on the churches to give as a tribute from hearts that are touched by the love of God and so grateful to him and so thankful to be a part of what he's doing and so full of awareness that Jesus owns it all anyway. He says, give what you can. Give a little bit more and be cheerful because what God's looking for is cheerful giving. And if we have to have a conversation about 95 or 10%, we're not thinking like kingdom people. I don't want to have to tell you as a pastor. I don't want to have to detail to you how you are to sacrifice for the king. I want you to be serious about the kingdom of God and give as you have been given to. I say it in love. Give as you have received. How has God blessed you? Is that reflected in the way you sacrifice and give for the kingdom? Or is it not? Because if you think of somehow an IRS code is going to help make people be on mission, I, it's been tried. It produces legalism and authoritarianism. If, the, if Jesus does not burn in your soul and enough, enough that you want to give yourself away for the kingdom, no amount of rules can help. I have thought about one thing. I make no apology for being wound up about this, by the way. This is the issue in our time in the church. <laughs> I thought of one possible edifying step. I'd love to talk about this some, sometime. I, I wonder if we could start having voluntarily adopted, voluntarily adopted community rules of life. They used to do this in mon monasteries. We're not a monastery, but they used to get together. People would band together under a rule of life and they would submit themselves to it voluntarily. We will follow these rules together voluntarily because what if, beloved, a church was to bind together. We're kind of signing on this. We're going to bind together. We are going to practice daily prayer together. We are going to practice weekly hospitality together. We are going to do this. We are going to start giving sacrificially until we can buy Trinity a building. We are going to bind ourselves together. We are going to disciple our kids. They're going to know the Bible. Not just in Sunday school. You're going to know catechism. We're going to teach them life skills. We're binding together because if we all sit in our individual choice, it'll never happen. And we don't need a church mandating it. We're going to bind ourselves together because we've got specific neighbors. We want to know Jesus. We're going to bind ourselves together to figure out how to make Jesus known to those specific neighbors. We're going to bind ourselves together to be a part of some short-term or long-term missions together. We're going to bind ourselves under a rule of life. These are things we're going to give our hearts to. Would that help? I don't know, but sacrifice is a robust norm of the kingdom. It is non-optional, and it can't be mandated by humans. It's got to come from the heart. You've got to love Jesus more than you love anything else, including your family, including your home, including your business, whatever it is.
And you know, a life of sacrifice like that, it's welcome when you see beyond appearances. Beyond your so-called real life, there's the mission. Beyond the flow of the world, there's the kingdom. Because we all love stories in which the servant girl turns out to be queen. And hobbits can bring down Sauron. And sheep have the power to tame wolves. But do we believe that we are living in exactly such a story? In fact, the greatest of all such stories. We really believe that. And does that energize our hearts to live accordingly, all in, sold out for Jesus the King and his mission? Can we be that church? God grant us your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.